Welcome to Small Places, the podcast where you can listen to conversations on challenging adultism, understanding children's rights, and fight for children's liberation. I'm your host, Eloise Rickman, and I'll be talking to activists, academics, educators, authors, and those who are on the front lines of this vital work. If you enjoy listening, why not sign up to Small Places on Substack, where you'll find essays, Q&As, and many more resources. You can join for free, or you can subscribe for just £5 a month to support my work and help me bring you more conversations just like this one. Now for this week's episode. This week I'm talking to Rowan Ryrie, co-founder of Parents for Future UK, a climate community for parents and caregivers who want to campaign for a safer world for all children. In our conversation, Rowan and I talk about why the climate movement needs everyone, however imperfect we might be, to fight for a livable future, why activism doesn't necessarily need to be as scary as we think it is, and how all of us can make a difference, no matter what our skill set and the amount of time we have available to us. I personally found our conversation deeply uplifting and motivating, and I know you're going to find Rowan as encouraging as I did. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Rowan, thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. It's lovely to talk to you. So for anyone who doesn't follow you or who isn't familiar with Parents for Future, can you tell us a little bit maybe first about yourself and how you decided or came to the decision to start Parents for Future? Sure. So I'm a mum of two young kids. Um, They're now nine and five. Um, And I come with a legal background. So I've worked in human rights and environmental law for quite a long time before back in 2019. I was very much inspired by the youth strikes movement and had already been thinking about the role of parents in making long-term decisions for our kids' future and joining the dots and understanding some of the climate predictions and realising that we need to be taking action now um, rather than waiting for our kids to do anything. And then the youth strikes movement happened and that really inspired me to step up alongside a lot of other adults who were having similar thoughts at the same time to help set up Parents for Future to try to make that movement more intergenerational. That's amazing. And I think there is... um such a disconnect sometimes in the way that we see children as you know well young people are kind of very responsible or incompetent and obviously people under 18 can't vote at the moment and yet when we look at the youth climate strikes movement and the whole youth leadership that has sprung up around climate climate crisis but also climate justice and bringing a real intersectional lens I think has been such a push for so many adults to go whoa you know, if these young people are stepping up, maybe we should do our bit as well. So that's really interesting to hear that that's how Parents for Future came about. Yes, it was also that it was the time that my my eldest daughter was starting school and I was starting to realise that there were a certain number of years of her education that kind of aligned with some of the predictions that were coming up at the time around the number of years in which we had to take mm. action. The IPCC put out a really important report in autumn of 2018, which had some numbers that really crystallised for me. My kids will still be very small when a lot of this kind of comes to reality in this country. Obviously, it's already affecting a lot of com- a lot of um, families around the world. But yes, working with the youth activists has been consistently inspiring and incredible. I did a lot of work early on also with Fridays for Future with the international groups. And a lot of that was um, was just listening and learning and 
understanding mm. how this enormous movement of very young people from all over the world coming with all sorts of different backgrounds were able to find ways to work together and how did they navigate that and how did they then kind of have the scale of impact that they were having so absolutely the youth strikes movement and then other youth activists have been one of my main my main teachers I think in understanding how to engage as an activist because it's a very different way of operating coming from mm. a legal background where it's very hierarchical. You've got a very set way of making decisions and engaging and working with other people to working in a movement space, which is much more fluid um, and much more relational. So understanding how those relationships with different people work. So observing how the youth activists have navigated that has been really important in then working out how we can do that with a different audience of parents. Oh, that is fascinating. And I think, yeah, we have so much to learn in so many different ways from the generations who are coming up now. Um, you know, so often in conversations with young people, I'm almost not taken aback, but just, you know, they seem so much more switched on and so much more, I don't know, open and aware of injustice in so many different ways. It feels really beautiful. And I love that we are thinking about these intergenerational spaces and intergenerational movements and how we can share perhaps our experience as people who are you know have some professional experience or caregiving experience but we can also learn so much from these younger people as well so yeah I love that ethos of parents for future um one of the things you mentioned which has also been something which really opened my eyes too was that when your daughter was going off to school you were suddenly like wow this is this isn't just something that's really far ahead in the future and I think that a lot of parents certainly that I've spoken to and not just parents you know other family members as well there is still I think for some people this idea that the climate crisis is still some way away you know yes our summers are getting hotter and yes we're seeing these awful storms and yes, in some other places, these things are getting worse, but surely we will be okay. And I think there is really this idea that, well, we still have some time. But yeah, mm. as you say, work from the IPCC has shown that actually this is a decade where we desperately need to be acting. And I wonder if you can talk some more on that. Sure. There's lots of statistics around the ways that children are already being impacted by the climate crisis that I think makes so crystal clear that this is not something that is going to happen in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years time. There's a st There was a report put out a couple of years ago, which I think was a, a UNICEF report, which showed that 99% of children alive today are already exposed to at least one major climate risk factor and wow. that was like air pollution air pollution is a huge one that is already mm. affecting most children in the world but also the risk of extreme weather of flooding of drought all of these these things that we're already seeing and we we've seen you know huge heat waves across europe this, it was strange that the uk wasn't experiencing that when it was all over the news this summer um, but yes, it's already affecting most children. And I think air pollution is one of the ways in which it's affecting most children in the UK already. But that's linked to the same issues. It's linked to fossil fuels. It's linked to the climate crisis and, and the kind of the issues that are causing um, the climate crisis and those higher risks of extreme weather, etc. So it really mm. is something that is still further down the line um, it will become more and more apparent as we get further into this crisis and we will get more of those extreme weather events here 
but there are plenty of families all around the world that are very much on the front lines of this already and I think it's a it's a danger to fall into that feeling of well it's not affecting me yet so I don't need to engage that's a position of, of massive privilege to be able to say it's not my kids so I'm not going mm. to engage but I also understand that like it's a very personal thing once you realize your children are likely to be impacted by this or already impacted and that was absolutely part of my motivation for stepping in originally but it's not something that's still far away um, and all of those predictions that are coming from the IPCC show that it's just going to get more intense and affect more children worse and more severely. Mm. And I think another aspect of the impact on children, but again, maybe similar to air pollution is something which isn't something that we sort of see, is just the impact on children and young people's mental health. And I know that the statistics show that so many young people are deeply anxious about what the future holds for them. And I can really... I can really see why, you know, to have these awful fears, to be seeing what's happening on the news, to be taking that in, and then to be seeing the adults in your life, the adults who are in charge, the lawmakers, the politicians, to see this real inertia, I think must be absolutely terrifying. Yeah, and I think the statistics on that are something like 86% of children from a big survey Mm. that was done a couple of years ago around the world show that they are already anxious about climate so there's there's research out there that underlines that and yes youth mental health is already hugely problematic without climate change being in the picture there's lots of reasons social media being just one why youth mental health is already at massive risk Um, but yes I think that point that you make about children needing to see the adults that they trust to look after them stepping up and dealing with something that they're being told is big bad and terrifying is really important and that's one of the reasons why I think it's really important for parents to step up alongside their kids so that their kids that are learning at school or you know from wherever else they're getting their information they're learning that climate change is going to affect them because that's what the science says that's what the facts say and then to see their parents kind of turning a blind eye or putting their head in the sand or pretend trying to pretend this away because it's uncomfortable I think causes real problems and it feels a bit like we're gaslighting our kids if we're not taking it seriously but to be able to stand alongside your kids and say I don't really know quite how to deal with this either but I'm taking it seriously and I'm going to do stuff with you I'm going to engage with you alongside this um, that's really powerful and I think that Mm -hmm. creates actually opportunities for connection with kids and for them to feel supported in the things that are worrying them. Definitely and I think a really beautiful reframing is this idea that actually we love our children so much and like many people I read Rupert Reed's book Parents for a Future when it came out a few years ago and he talks about you know climate activism as almost a kind of an expression of the love that we have for the children in our lives for their children for the children around us for the children in other countries and you know purely just from a selfish perspective if you love your kids, if you love your nieces, your nephews, your grandchildren, that actually this is something tangible that we can do for them. We can take care of them and we can keep them safe. Um, There was also a really powerful clip by Cristiana Figueres, who um, I think she was quite central to the Paris Accord, wasn't she? She was. Um, And she's also written a brilliant book, which I've completely forgotten the name of it now. She co-wrote it with someone and it is a brilliant book. Which we Um, choose. Yes, there we go, The Future We Choose, which is a really brilliant, hopeful and accessible book. Um, And I saw a fantastic clip 
where she was saying the other day, you know, if you saw a truck coming down the street towards your children, you wouldn't just be like, huh, let me see if the, you know, the road designers are going to change it. You would step in front, you would take action. You would try and keep your children safe. And this is absolutely something which is posing a real existential risk, not just to our children, but to children everywhere. And I think sometimes there is this difficulty to believe that it really is as bad as people say it is. I think perhaps some people feel like, well, if it really was this bad, if it really was this existential risk, surely we would see policymakers doing something. Surely we would see mass protests. Surely we would be seeing every single politician around the world devoting so much resource to changing this. And yet, I think for so many people, there is this real disconnect between what the scientists are telling us and what they're seeing publicly around them happening. And I think that can cause some people to sort of stick their head in the sand a little bit. Is that something you've seen as well? Yeah, I think it's a really common response that people still think that surely these people that are, quote unquote, in charge, that they're going to be the adults in the room and they're going to act in a way that is in everyone's best interests. And that's actually not what's happening because they are very close to the fossil fuel industry. In most countries, there's a very strong connection between the political power and often kind of corporate power as well, and industries like the fossil fuel industry, who are one of the major contributors to the climate crisis. So where you've got that kind of close connection between political power and the industries that are causing this, you're not getting politicians acting in everyone's best interests. Um, and it, I think it is really hard to believe that because we all want to trust that our democratic processes are going to result in leaders taking decisions that are for all of us. But that's not really what we're seeing at the moment. And that is very hard to wrap our heads around. Um, I also just want to jump back to that one other point that you made around if we love our kids, we there's a there's a sort of there's a danger of turning that into a if you love your children, you have to take action on climate which on a moral level I understand, but I also want to kind of recognise that there's a lot of families that are struggling with the day-to-day -day reality. And particularly right now, the cost of living crisis is very real um, and affecting most of us and some worse than others. Mm. That does make it really hard for many people to engage around climate action. And that's okay. I think people need to you know, engage in a way that is possible for them but those that do have stability that do have a stable income that do have a roof over our heads that do live in a country where it is possible to raise our voices safely there is more of a a need for those of us that can do that work to step up and to use our voices because not everybody is able to do that mm, thank you for bringing in that nuance I think that's really important and I think this is something that we have seen even just here in the UK you know a lot of people are having a really tough time at the moment and it is hard when you're thinking about well how am I going to pay my next energy bill how am I going to make ends meet this month to get food on the table we've seen massive increases in people needing to use food banks huge increases yet again in child poverty the number of children who are completely destitute is rising I can see why it is really difficult for a lot of families to be thinking about the climate crisis as a risk to their families when they have many more very urgent pressing risks right now but like you say it feels like for those of us who are more privileged to have more time and headspace 
this is something where we can be thinking, well, can I use some of this to take action? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And there's, there's many ways to do that. So I think finding ways to to do that that's possible for you, that's, you know, uses the unique space, voice connections that each person has. I think trying to understand how how you fit into society, what's your network, what's the spaces that you might be able to influence and then work out how to use that in a way that can push towards positive change so that for different people that looks really different that might be protest for some people and for me protest has been an important part of that journey um, and I'm happy to talk about that a bit more but for others it might be workplace it might be you know looking at how you can influence policies that your workplace has how you can influence your workplace pensions how where they're banking you know finance is hugely important and some banks are massively worse than others things like Barclays is one of the worst banks at the moment for supporting fossil fuel projects and don't have adequate policies around you know scaling back what they're supporting on oil and gas and, and coal still so if you can move companies away from some of those worse insurance uh, and finance companies then it has much more impact than you just changing your personal banking or your personal pension so trying to kind of think at that collective level of where is the greatest impact you can have mm. or that might be through your council it might be through engaging with politicians it might be through your school there's lots of different spaces where people have a unique kind of circle of connections around them each person has a, a different space a different kind of constellation of people so how can you use your particular connections uniquely I think and your voice and I would also say just for anyone who is thinking about changing bank accounts, if you're like me and very find admin stuff very difficult, there are now lots of websites and tools which you can use, which will kind of do that for you. So do have a look around. And there are a couple of websites which make it really clear which banks are doing better and which banks are doing worse. So that is definitely worth having conversations around. Um I also want to come back to something you were just saying, Rowan, around there are so many different forms of activism. And I think, as you say, talking to workplaces, talking to friends and colleagues, coming together with others is so important. But even in the sort of activism space, you were saying there's more than just protesting. How are so I'm a member of Parents for Future. Thank you very much for setting it up. But even just through Parents for Future, you can see that there are so many different ways of taking part. So Parents for Future organises social media campaigns. They organise calls where you can learn more about topics to write to your MP. So it's not just about going out on the streets and protesting. Yeah, exactly. And I think different things are going to feel possible for different people at different times. And I think part of the work that we've been doing with Parents for Future is trying to make any of this political engagement possible for parents, because a lot of that, a lot of political spaces are really inaccessible for parents of young children. Mm. And so finding ways that this age group, which is potentially a very powerful, very motivated age group, can engage is, is important in and of itself. And it feels really nerve wracking for a lot of people who've never, you know, gone and had a meeting with an MP to go and do that for the first time. I found it really nerve wracking the first time I went to meet with my MP, but it's I think it's still worth doing and finding ways to step outside your comfort zone with support around you, with other people that are also finding ways to you know, push their boundaries a little bit and go and do something that they, they kind of want to do, but they're a bit nervous about doing. 
but part of the main function of Parents for Future is creating that community of other people who are also trying to find their space and their ways to engage mm. and get some support, whatever it is, whatever the kind of way people are taking action, but to be able to ask some advice from other people and then get some support from others around what you're specifically doing is really helpful and it really enables people to do more than I think you're able mm. to do if you're doing it on your own. Absolutely. And I think what we saw when we had the the height of the COVID pandemic as well, and what I'm sure we will continue to see increasingly as we do feel in our areas the impact of a climate crisis more, is that we need to be in community with one another. We need to be sharing our skills, sharing our resources, coming together to mobilise, to support one another. And I think this feels like such a, a great way to test those waters if this is something that you feel a bit nervous about doing. Yeah, Bill McKibben is one of the main organisers in the US. He's, he was very involved in setting up several movements there. And he always says that the best thing you can do to take action or to have an impact on the climate crisis is to be less of an individual. Mm. To find ways to take collective action and to do something together with others rather than feeling like you personally have to solve this for your kids because you can't. And there is mm. some kind of there's some relief in that. There's some fear in that as well of realizing that you personally can't protect your kids from this big thing. But doing something together with others is likely to have far more impact than trying to take on that burden yourself. And it also there's lots of you know cultural capitalist approaches that's all about individualizing our guilt and our yeah. impact and trying to break away from that and challenge it and say actually it's not me personally it's a systemic issue and if we're going to tackle this systemic issue we need to work together. So one of the things I found really interesting um, was learning about the origins of the uh, like personal carbon budget. Yes. Can you maybe tell anyone who isn't familiar with that where this idea came from? This idea was an idea that one of the fossil fuel companies, I think it was Shell, but I could it could be BP, they're similar anyway. They came up with this concept of a carbon footprint, which was very much about putting the burden back onto the individual and taking away the focus from what the companies are doing, but saying this is what individual people, this is what your personal footprint is going to be and trying to make it feel like we as individuals therefore have to solve this and kind of cutting the companies out of that narrative. And yes, I think challenging that and saying, look, that's not, that's not the situation here. And every individual is operating within a system in which we don't have freedom to completely change and completely walk away from our energy system. We do need mm. to keep our houses warm. We need to, you know, travel. There's lots of systems there that we can't entirely step outside. And so we need to find ways to not fall directly into that lifestyle changes narrative of I need to recycle more or I need whatever it might be. We're not going to solve it if we stay at that level and we're going to play into the hands of companies if we're taking it all as a personal quest. Um, we need to try to find ways to, to see this collectively. Yeah, I think that's such an important message. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's something I have definitely both heard from other people and also definitely had moments of feeling myself is this sense of kind of personal hopelessness in the past when you know for example as a family we try not to fly very much so mm -hmm. we we would we're not saying we will never fly but that it would be something we would really limit as much as possible and I had this real moment of 
just feeling like is this all worth it mm. when I learned that over COVID loads of empty flights were still running just yeah. to keep the airspace up or when you read about billionaires who take like six minute long private jet flights and or I think or I prime minister absolutely and I think there is sometimes this real feeling when you focus just on those individual lifestyle changes of thinking well what's the point you know what's the point of me not flying or what's the point of me not eating meat when all of this other stuff is happening but I think when you put it back into that sense of being in a community being collective also for me it's also about having integrity to my own values mm. and just feeling like okay it doesn't matter what everyone else is doing as long as I feel like I can sit with my own you know decisions within my own moral framework that has been helpful for me as well um yeah, yeah I think, I think aligning with what you think is the right choice is important and it has power and it helps you feel more grounded and therefore more able to stay engaged I think but the other point I would add to that is if you are making those kind of choices talk about it mm. because that's how we start to reach the sort of social tipping points that we talk about a bit with parents for future is we need other people to understand that the people around them and kind of peer influencing is really important. So parents talking to other parents and saying, actually, we've decided to make X choice, whether that's, you know, take the ferry to France rather than fly to the Maldives or, you know, whatever it might be, or um, buying secondhand clothing. Or, I mean, this is sort of yeah. coming back into individual choices, but if we can, we, we are all going to have to change the way we consume. Yes. And we need to talk about it because that's how other people will realize that people like them are seeing this as an important issue and are making decisions within their lives on the basis of the impact it's going to have on the environment. And there's data around if we can reach kind of 25% of the population is the data around social tipping points. If you can get to kind of 25% that are engaged and you've got that kind of committed minority, you start mm. to get to kind of social tipping points where it becomes much more likely that more people are going to engage and that you get that kind of rolling ball momentum thing. Um, so talking about it really is important. And 25% still sounds like quite a lot, but, and this I find really helpful, there was some research done a couple of years ago by uh, Climate Outreach, which is a great organisation, where they looked at the UK population into different segments and how different groups of the population relate to climate. And um, the most engaged group is the progressive activist group. Um, and there's 16% already in that group. So you've already got Amazing. 16%. So we're trying to get another 11 at the moment to try to get that kind of social tipping point and to get that ball rolling. But I think when you start to kind of break it down and, and say, look, this is what we're we're intending to get and we need to get more people engaged. It might be that we need more than 25 because climate's a big thorny issue and actually it is going to need all of us to engage one way or another. And because there's a lot of forces acting against us, like there's a lot of money on the side of not doing anything coming yeah. from the fossil fuel industry and others. Um, so it, it might be that we need more, but that feels like a good number to be aiming for at the moment. And this, to me, feels like such a powerful message, because no matter what your personal situation, you know, whether you have very young children or whether you are working a really busy, demanding job or, you know, whether you have big caring responsibilities, 
it is something that we can all do. We can all bring up the climate crisis in conversation. We can tell people how we feel. When there's a heat wave, we can say that we're feeling anxious about it. When there's a big storm, we can bring it up. When there's a general election, we can talk to our friends about how green policies are going to be key to our voting intentions. And this doesn't require any extra additional time or money. Um, yeah, and it's one of the main pieces of work that we're working on with Parents for Future at the moment is a big piece of work around courageous conversations. And it does take mm. a bit of courage to bring up awkward conversations or awkward topics and conversations with friends or family or work colleagues or whatever. Um, but there's research again that says that currently, although I think it's about 84% of the UK population say that they're concerned about climate to one extent or another. 57% talk about climate infrequently, rarely or never. Wow. So there's a huge silence around an issue that most of us are really concerned about. And finding ways to get through that silence is really important if we're going to get to any of those kind of social tipping points. And the social tipping points also, you know, a big part of that is political will. Because unless mm. the politicians are hearing that we as a as an electorate care about this, they're not going to shift their policies. And that either means we're going to get the same group of politicians or a different group, but with weak policies. So yeah. we need to be voicing what we want um, in order for politicians to take that seriously. So the work we're doing at the moment is trialing how we can support parents to have conversations about climate. And it's very, very small scale through this autumn. Um, but with a lot of learning built in. So hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have a much clearer sense on how we can most effectively support people to have these kind of conversations and what impact it has. Is that just about making climate a more salient issue? Does it help shift people's behaviour in a particular way? Is there some other impact? So our hope is that next year we can do that on a larger scale. Um, we'd like to be able to support many more people, probably in, with a kind of small group model, because it's really nice to have a close group that you get to trust and you can kind of come back to that group and understand um, how each other are engaging with this process but we are still figuring out quite what that scaling up model looks like um, and we need to fundraise for it so that we can support that at a larger scale but that's very much a, a kind of focus at the moment and with an election next year I think enabling us all to talk about climate yeah. more is going to be really important. Absolutely and I'm so excited to hear that you're doing this work because it feels like such a vital piece of that puzzle. And I know that you said you're currently still in the early stages, but do you have a sense of why there is this big disconnect between people who care about the climate crisis and are worried about it, but who aren't actually talking about it and having those conversations? What do you think some of the barriers are to people bringing this up in conversation? Do you think it's just people feeling like it's a bit awkward or are people feeling like they're going to be accused of being hypocrites because you know what 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 are you hearing from people? I think that concern about being a hypocrite is a really big one I think that does keep a lot of people silent and a lot of people away from climate action are feeling like but I drive a diesel car so I can't possibly talk about climate or mm. I still eat meat or dairy or you know whatever it is many of these issues that we know are contributing to the climate crisis um but if you take that back to what we were saying earlier about individual actions compared to collective actions, actually, even if you're still kind of trapped within the system, we're all trapped within the system to one sense, to one extent or another, um, and we can still take action. We still have agency. We still have spaces where we can act. And I think trying to get over that sense that you have to be perfect 
in order to speak yeah. out of climate is actually hugely important. But there's lots of, I think, I find um, some of the work around like shame really helpful. Brene Brown's work mm, on shame. Yes. And shame is such an unhelpful em emotion and way of relating to pretty much anything. Um, but it keeps us silent. And so if those narratives are saying that you have to be perfect in order to engage on climate, that's a way of making people feel ashamed and therefore keeping them silent. So if we can kind of internally push back on that and say, look, it's I'm not perfect and I'm not at all. I, my house is heated by fossil fuels. We don't have an alternative. I live in a Victorian terrace. It's very hard to insulate it or put in you know, ground source heat pumps, all of those things are really hard to do because of the infrastructure that we've got and because it's expensive, because the government doesn't subsidize it effectively. Yeah. Um, but I still care about my kids and their future planet. And so I'm going to step through that discomfort and find ways to use my voice. Mm, thank you for sharing that. I think that's a really powerful reminder. And but like you said, actually, we can almost turn those things into a demand yes I'm still having to do xyz and I want better alternatives yeah and I think that and we've really seen that with for example um you know like substitutes for meat and dairy we've seen a huge rise in like vegan proteins being much more widely available so I think you can see a clear kind of consumer demand being met by by products being created um yeah and I'm hoping that the more we have demand for other things, such as more sustainable ways to heat our homes, to insulate our homes, better ways to travel, I'm hoping that we will also see a corresponding um, innovation around those things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but we do, we need to voice it in order to get yes. that. I think it's been a long time coming to get that kind of scale in Mm. vegan alternatives available um but we do need to be pushing to get those similar alternatives particularly i think home insulation home heating is a huge huge gap and the uk has a particular problem in terms of the yes. housing stock that we've got we've got a very old cold leaky housing stock and so that is going to require investment from the government mm. because most of us homeowners or in rented properties can't afford to make the kind of changes that we need to to be able to keep our homes warmer in a way that's more sustainable absolutely and I think and we have touched on this I think a little bit earlier in our conversation but I think as well as using our voices to call for um, change both from our politicians but also from you know the companies and the people who are coming up with these things I think another huge benefit for me personally, and I think that research also bears this out, is that when we talk about these things, when we show up in whatever form of activism we're choosing to engage in, it also helps us feel less alone and less anxious because yeah. we feel that we're being heard and we feel supported. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we really see that through the Parents for Future community. And we try, we're very intentional about incorporating emotional support into all of the Parents mm. for Future spaces because I think... We need to be resilient if we're going to stay in this work, um, but also as a group of parents who are concerned about our children's future, there's a lot of emotional burden already just in engaging with this. So we've got a lot of emotional support that we embed in how we do the work with Parents for Future. But yes, I think if you're 
on a sort of subconscious or conscious level, spending a lot of time being quite scared about something and then you do something about it, it does enable a lot of that fear can kind of be quiet or can go away for a while and you can step into a space of feeling actually a lot more energy and that it's possible for you to do a lot more because all of that kind of subconscious burden worry time is isn't there anymore and so people often say that they find that quite quite a relief I think being able to step into action and being able to find that they can actually do something rather than just sit there silent being afraid and feeling yes definitely and I think that is something where in our political system we're not necessarily encouraged to participate in these very direct ways we're encouraged to well you know once every four or five years you can tick your box and that sort of it and if you have to well you can write your mp but we sort of discourage that um, send you a stop response that might exactly which is so disappointing um and i love that there is this real sense of actually we can we do have power as individuals and especially when we come together collectively we do have power to change things and when we look throughout the history of social change that change has not traditionally come from the people in power suddenly realizing oh maybe we should do something about this but it has come from the bottom up yes absolutely and I would love to have a greater sense of parents having power because I think Mm. that's not really a narrative that we see in our society at the moment. Parenthood is perceived as kind of very apolitical and it can feel quite taboo to bring in any political conversation to a parent space. But actually, as a group, it's a kind of an age group. It's a group that is likely there's there's workplace connections and power that you've got through work. There's financial, you know, we've got how we use our money and how we are what who we're banking with there's lots of those kind of spaces where we have power we've got voting power there's power that we have as a collective group there's a kind of moral power that I think as parents we can speak in a way that lots of other groups in society can't have that quite that same voice um but yes we're discouraged from seeing any of that either you know as a collective of parents or as a generation of people that are going through experiencing parenthood um but yes I think it would be great for us to shift that perception and see that there is agency that we can we can step into agency if we Mm. choose to do so but I think you're also that point you're also saying that we're not encouraged to think that it's an active discouragement from anybody to Mm. feel like we have any political power Um, and one of the other barriers that I think we have to climate engagement for parents is fear of the way that things like protest have been perceived and the way that that's been portrayed by the media very very deliberately over the last few years particularly around climate and environmental issues so there's a perception that if you're going to to engage around climate then that equals arrestable protest and that's Mm. absolutely not the case so there are lots and lots of ways that you can engage that a are not protest and b protest generally doesn't involve getting arrested protest is legal is a really really important message that the government Mm very unwilling to get out there um but protest is a fundamental part of how our democracy functions it's built into the system that if we disagree with the decisions that our elected representatives are making we can protest to show them that we don't like that and that we don't want them to do that in our name because they work for us Um, but the government has very very deliberately introduced new legislation over the last few years particularly in response to Extinction Rebellion and then more recently to Insulate Britain and Just Stop Oil that clamped down on protest and the UK is now the most difficult country to protest in of any of the G7 nations so 
it's very real. There was um, that was some research. I think it was earlier this year. There's a kind of ranking that looks at countries around the world and how difficult it is to use those kind of freedom freedoms to protest. Um, but the right to protest is enshrined in our legislation, and it's a fundamental part of democracy. So, using it where it where we can and and for people who can and very much recognizing that protest is higher risk for some people than for others the police mm. biases is is very real um and yeah lots of groups have been on the receiving end of the way the police will clamp down on black and brown protesters particularly is much harsher um but it's it is important, I think, that we use those protest rights. I've been on dozens and dozens of protests at this point, and I've never been arrested. And I think that's a whole story of protest that we tend not to hear is people yeah. that are engaging in peaceful protest and joyful protest and protest. The energy of a group of people coming together to raise their voices about an issue is actually really powerful. Mm. Um, and often really encouraging to then go away afterwards and know that all those other people are still there and they've gone back to their lives and they're still keeping doing things as well. So it can be really energizing um, coming together in protest in some way. And we often have protests that involve kids that have, you know, street entertainers and bubbles and songs and they're, they're really enjoyable um, mm. spaces very often. Um, as well as ways that we can raise our voices and do that visibly. So I think it's very calculated um, that we've been discouraged from perceiving ourselves as having any power. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up because that is certainly something where a lot of people say to me, well, I can't protest because I have young children or I've got caring responsibilities. And there is, I think, still this real perception that, well, a protest is inherently a dangerous thing to do. And I think a lot of the media coverage around Just Stop Oil or Extinction Rebellion and photos of protesters being dragged off by the police really feeds into this idea that protest is inherently dangerous, something for other people to do um, that doesn't include families children especially young children doesn't include parents doesn't include people like you and I love what you're saying around actually protest is for everyone and this is a real fundamental democratic right that we have and we kind of need to use it as we much do. as we can if we, we are in a privileged position to yeah. be able to do so I mean particularly right now and I'm we're recording this just before Remembrance Day, Remembrance Weekend, when big protests are planned. And it's very yeah. obvious how the Home Secretary is trying to use her voice to make protests more difficult and to criticise the way the police are handling it. And the police are saying, actually, protest is allowed and we're not going to prevent yes. a big pr planned protest. But the, in the legislation that's been introduced, things like the Public Order Act mm -hmm. that was introduced earlier this year, is very, very deliberate. Um, and very deliberately focused on the rights of hum of um, environmental and climate protesters. And that's gone all the way up to like the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights has raised serious concerns about the UK legislation. It's not that this is normal, it's not that this is okay, that the UK is acting this way towards climate and environmental protesters. I mean, saying it's not normal, this is happening in a number of countries around the world. Unfortunately, the UK is not alone in making it harder to protest. But it's not okay and it does mm. fly in the face of some of the, the rights that we have that's enshrined in things like the European Convention of Human Rights that there is the right to protest um, as part of our democracy. But I'd also say that when we see those photos in the media of protesters being dragged off, 
that's partly because the media will not cover peaceful protest. Yeah. And this is something we found really frustrating is that we can organize beautiful, creative, joyful, um, inclusive protests with children, with families, and it doesn't get media coverage because the media mm. is most focused on portraying the kind of protest that Just Stop Oil and Insulate Britain do because that feeds into the media narrative of protest is bad. So there is yeah. a complicity between a lot of the mainstream media and um, the government in together portraying protesters as this really problematic group in society. And we found that particularly frustrating around um, together with other organizations, we were part of organizing the big one, which was a kind of XR led, but very much coalition um, protest over three days, I think it was in April this year. And we helped to organize a family block for that um, with together with um, other parent and family climate groups for several days. And we had hundreds and hundreds of families turn up and it was great. Um, but overall, it was, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, I think, on the streets in London. And it got almost no coverage yes. because it was peaceful. Um, and it doesn't like the media is, I think, much more interested in portraying XR as people that are getting arrested and disruptive protest rather mm. than also able to bring together peaceful protests and non-disruptive and legal actions uh, with permissions in place. I think I can't even remember exactly what the permissions were around that protest, but it wasn't disruptive. It was peaceful and it didn't get any coverage. And I don't think that that's mm. a coincidence. And something which I think is such a an important reminder as well, if you're talking to friends or family members who are complaining about the disruption that can come from certain climate protests or actions is you know just now recently we've seen um, Storm Babette the mm -hmm. massive impact of that in the north of England with houses being completely flooded you know five meters of flood water some people have died sadly the absolute chaos and that's just in the UK you know we can look elsewhere as well um, that to me feels much more disruptive to people's daily lives than having a road blocked off once every few months or you know reading about something on the news I think we really have to um, take this in context of yes a little bit of disruption here and there to a tiny minority of people might actually be worth it to stop this enormous disruption which will happen to all of us if we continue like this. Yeah climate inaction is much much more dangerous to our children than climate protest yeah and I think keeping that in mind is is really important that that's that's the problem is the lack of action on climate and small isolated generally you know short-term climate protests are far far less dangerous for all of us than the kind of climate inaction that we see from government and mm. so if anyone is listening to this and thinking right you've convinced me where do I sign up how can people find out more about Parents for Future and the work you do so I'd look on the Parents for Future website, um, parentsforfuture.org.uk, I think, should be. Um, we, re we put up a new website recently, which has got um, a lots of details of all of the events that we've got coming up. There's regular joining calls, so you can join a call, find out about Parents for Future, and then we've got an online platform that once you've been through one of those welcome calls, you can join, and then that's it's very easy to get involved in any of the campaigns. We have working groups for people that are really actively wanting to get engaged. There's a set of local groups across the country. So in some areas, you might well have a local group that you can join and find people in your area. 
um, and actions that you can take part in in your area. But then there's also the online community for anybody that wants to be engaged kind of at national level around campaigns or conversations around different issues and just sharing experiences, which is also very valuable. So there's lots of lots of ways to engage. And we've got some actions coming up um, at the end of November, um, which hopefully you'll see a bit more about that, um, pointing to voting records of politicians on different issues. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And just one last very quick question for anyone who's listening who isn't in the UK. Is Parents for Future just a UK organisation or are there offshoots in different countries? Do you know? It's not. I helped to set up Parents for Future Global as well as Parents for Future. Okay, wonderful. Um, So there are, it looks different in different countries, but do have a search and see. Uh, Parents for Future Global also has a website. I'm not sure how up to date it will be in terms of the list of countries because some groups have um, have grown, some groups have kind of stalled, some groups are they're working in different ways in different countries. And they also have different names. So not every group that does this kind of work is called Parents for Future. There's a group called For Our Kids that's doing great work in Canada. There's Familias Pelo Clima who's doing great work in Brazil. And so it looks different in different places, but lots of those should be linked from the Parents for Future Global website. Wonderful. Rowan, thank you so much for your time today. It's great. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed our conversation, why not sign up to Small Places on Substack, where you'll get podcasts, essays, Q&As, and many more resources straight to your inbox. You can join for free or subscribe for just £5 a month to support my work and help me bring you more conversations just like this one. I'll see you next week. Bye for now.